Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger. And as always, we have another amazing guest with us is Ted Shilowitz. Ted is the futurist in residence at Paramount Studios. Welcome, Ted, to the show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. You've got an interesting title that not a lot of people have. How did you get involved in this kind of innovation space? And what do you actually do at Paramount? So as you might imagine, it's a fairly popular question. I apologize in advance for my gravelly voice today. I'm just back from a quite harried and fun week at CES, and I picked up this wonderful post-CES flu, which I think you just (laughs) happen to get when you open yourself up to that large of a pool of 200,000 of your best friends that all want to say hi to you at the same time. In terms of what does a futurist do for a movie studio, yes, I work at Paramount Pictures. I did this same job at 20th Century Fox before this for a little over five years. Really what I do is I'm an explorer. I look at technology with an eye towards storytelling and creativity as a tool set to help evolve the art and science and pursuit of telling visual stories. Essentially a modern kind of lab rat. I experiment (laughs) with all kinds of different tech and I see what might make something valuable for the pursuit of X amount of years down the road of how we might look at story. You are an advisor to the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts here in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Yep. I work with Megan Elliott and Megan invited myself and I in turn invited my daughter to come to one of your talks. It was fascinating because you talked a lot about some of the future things that you're seeing when it comes to AR, VR, mixed reality in that. So I wanted to dig in a little bit about what are you seeing when it comes to storytelling in this intersection between technology and human behavior? What are you seeing that's really driving this intersection and collision between the two? I thought it was super interesting to give that presentation at the university for a number of reasons. First of all, what Megan and that team are working on is unbelievably exciting and ambitious to me, that they're building an entire school dedicated to emerging media arts. They'll interface with the cinema school and interface with the TV school, but this whole school is really designed around next generation entertainment. So as you might imagine, I was all about helping in any way I could and advising and helping craft curriculum and come up with ideas and give them suggestions on the kind of equipment they should be experimenting with, et cetera. Your daughter was pretty wonderful because in that little talk, she was kind of my go-to to point to you know, who's going to care about all this stuff? And it was really charming and intriguing to watch the way she was reacting to some of the things I was talking about, some of the equipment I'm using for virtual reality and mixed reality to prove out and test things. And you could see how quickly it resonated with her and how excited she was about these mediums. It was almost like I had my own little miniature focus group in your daughter there that was just giving me complete genuine, valid feedback that we were on the right track. with. So that was great. I think there's just going to be more of that with Nebraska and the larger world as the educational groups around the world start to realize this is really the next horizon. Things that don't specifically relate to what we call flat screen media. 
mm-hmm. right? Media from the past, as it were. And that doesn't mean that media like this is going to be any less relevant or any less important or any less used. It just means that I believe we're entering a day and a time and an era where these experimental platforms, virtual reality and mixed reality, these next generation screens that are trackable and know where you are in physical space and can start to create the illusion of reality, like the way our eyes and our brains actually work is we track things with our eyes and our brains, right? Right. They don't live inside a border. The border just happens to be wherever our eyes are looking and wherever our peripheral vision decides to stop seeing or push that into soft focus. I think we're just at a really, really exciting time in the evolution of entertainment, where a lot of this stuff is starting to scratch the surface on how it will be mainstream entertainment. We're not anywhere there yet at all. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions of a lot of the people that were predicting that this current wave of virtual reality as it exists today was going to be this massive dominant force in entertainment, both economically and creatively. I never saw it as that and still don't see it as that. I see this as just an emerging evolutionary process of teaching people about new ways to use new, more powerful, more advanced screens in their lives. And this is going to take significant time and significant energy. And I think it's kind of interesting that the university systems, these forward-thinking universities like University of Nebraska, are taking the mantle of that and actually pushing that forward. Because I think that's where we're, we're all going to learn a lot is within the safety net of a school system where you're encouraged to experiment and try new things and figure out new things. Luckily for me, that's what I actually get to do for a living at the movie studio, is I get to experiment. They give me the freedom to figure out new things. And the justification for that is if you don't have somebody exploring, you're likely not going to find anything new. If you have someone who's dedicated to exploring, you're probably going to find something new and you're probably going to find it a little bit faster than those that aren't. And then you can capitalize on that. And that's an interesting point because if you think about entertainment and Paramount, one of the oldest studios, if not the oldest, 100 plus years around producing traditional television movies and traditional entertainment, entertainment itself has, like you said, kind of moved and morphed beyond just the traditional ways that we're seeing it. It's moved into gaming. It's moved into online. So how are you seeing these trends of entertainment morphing into and becoming almost different types of industries? How is that being played out? I think if you look at the word entertainment, and what it means and how it's evolving to a modern audience, they expect that to be at the place that they want in the formulation they want when they want it. So that may be within a video game console and a flat screen TV. That may be in a giant cinema auditorium. That may be in a mobile device. And eventually that would likely be in a mixed reality device that they have with them all the time that in a number of ways has replaced their smartphone for for use case. You kind of look at the desire factor of on-demand entertainment in various forms. What a modern audience seems to want is whatever they want, whatever their heart desires, when they want it, with the platform at the ready to deliver it. If you look at the value of a screen that can give you the illusion of it being any size you want, from the believability that it's a giant movie screen in front of you, to a small personal screen, to a screen that has six degrees of freedom, so you can actually move around and walk around in that screen, kind of like you would walk around in a theme park, except that theme park is electronic and you're wearing it on your face. If you have 
that kind of device with you all the time, that's kind of like the mother of all devices. It's the thing that gives you the option to have a cinema experience, a gaming experience, a social experience, a productivity experience, an education experience at whatever size and formulation screen you want because you're basically connecting it to your eyeballs and your brain in the most intimate way possible, something we really haven't done yet at scale. And I'm one of these oddball characters that gets to experiment with that kind of formulation almost all day long. Like I have some weird device on my face for at least half of my working day every day and a good portion of my non-working day because there really is no sort of difference of when I'm at work (laughs) and when I'm not at work. It's all At home last night, I was doing stuff with the Magic Leap for six hours up until about one in the morning, playing and testing some new stuff that they were delivering and showing. And during the day, I had a VR headset on for about three hours. And that's a very typical average day for me. While I do have plenty of very large screens you would buy in a Best Buy in my lab, in my office, at the studio, I also have a plethora of virtual reality and mixed reality headsets. You kind of name it, and I've got three of them sitting here <laughs> for myself and the teams that work with me. And we're constantly testing and figuring out, and we're basically putting our time under the hood. We're logging our hours. There's a popular phrase about the 10,000 hours you need to put in to be somewhat versed in any area, whether you're playing the violin or the piano or learning about cinema or learning about television, or in this case, learning about virtual reality and augmented reality, which is a harder thing to get your 10,000 hours. We've all got our 10,000 hours in TV. We're all experts in TV. (laughs) Many of us have that much time under the hood in a cinema, but very few of us have that much time under the hood in a VR headset, much less a, a mixed reality headset, which is even more exotic. I feel like it's part of my mission to be one of those like explorers that's logging those 10,000 hours so I can tell you what I think might be happening with this. And that's what I bring back to the executives at the studio with a point of knowledge and a point of reference that you can only get by just being in the soup all day long. So as a technology guinea pig and obviously somebody who gets excited about a lot of this stuff, what is exciting you currently? And, and conversely, what is scaring you about this technology? Well, let's take scared first, because that's always an interesting one. The technology doesn't scare me at all. The power of what this technology can do is quite accelerated from other kinds of technology in terms of the level of sophistication of the screen and the ability over time to create the full-on illusion of reality of something that isn't really real. I probably don't have to tell you or go deeper into that as to why There might be some very significant ethical concerns about what we do with this technology. There might be some very significant safety concerns about what we do with technology. And there might be some very significant concerns about what is truth and what is not truth, which we're already seeing in a very sophisticated manner with our current formulation of screen-based social media. And, you know, what characterizes something that is legitimate and factual and truthful and has been gone through the vetting process of a media institution that actually cares about truth versus this current state of media dynamics where it's sort of impossible to tell what vetting process, if anything, has gone through before it's published into the world because it's so easy to publish these days. Take the concerns of that, which are mighty and strong, and as we've seen you know, all the outputs of that with some of these giant titans of these giant technology companies trying to 
best defend themselves and are on pretty shaky ground at the best scenarios. Now apply that to a power accelerator of the next kind of screen where your brain, your body, your visual cortex can really be fooled. And it adds an air and a, and a weight of responsibility on those that are creating content, that are criticizing content, that are viewing content, that are reporting on the content and reporting on the technology to be aware that these things are very powerful. And you know, there's that famous line, with great power comes great responsibility. We have to be responsible. I tend to be an optimist. I tend to look at the fact that for the most part, new technologies breed new forms of positive human nature and positive outcome and technological benefits that help humanity in many, many ways, deep-rooted in many ways, and that the negative parts of this are the outliers and the edge cases and not the main source of what the human equation wants from this technology right. and will do with this technology. That being said, I still take a lot of care and I still talk very openly and overtly about how powerful and potentially dangerous these technologies can be in the wrong hands. Conversely, then, what is the most exciting thing that you're seeing out there? And maybe tied into some of the things you might have seen last week at CES or some of the cutting edge stuff that you may be privy to that the average citizen is not seeing on a daily basis. We refer to it in my world as mixed reality or extended reality. There's going to be a strong and viable industry in the world of what we call virtual reality, which is cover your face, cover your eyeballs, bring you into a completely artificial created world where you're not seeing anything from the outside world and you're just in that world. There's a lot of gaming experiences, story-driven narrative experiences, both interactive and passive, that are showing the power of that. But my belief is that the stronger of the mediums will be what we refer to as mixed reality or extended reality, where you're still actually seeing the outside world with this technology layer on your face that is blending the outside world with artificially created assets, whether those are actually cinematographically captured assets or CGI and graphics created assets. But the idea of blending that reality with fiction and putting it into your environment, your world where you're grounded and you understand where you are, I believe it has almost unlimited capabilities. And the kinds of good and the kind of amazement and the kind of entertainment that will come from it are sort of astounding when you think about what we can now do with, I'm in my living room and I can play a game where monsters and aliens are literally crawling out from under the couch, from behind and, and around the corner, from out of the walls and from out of the fireplace. And I'm interacting with those creatures as if they were really in my living room. Right. And um, if you're playing that, that game somewhere else in my house, it would look differently, but yet it would still be adaptive to your environment almost. Correct. The elements would be the same, but they would adapt to your environment. And that to me is, I think, maybe the most evolved current form of what we're talking about with this style of a very powerful, evolved, trackable, transparent screen that can choose to be virtual reality or full virtual reality as much as it wants. All we're doing is hiding the outside world. But the most powerful version of it is when you're blending the real world that you know and you understand the orientation of with these artificial elements that have been created by artists and, and creators. So did you see anything at CES that was intriguing or there's been hype and talk that virtual reality, augmented reality, this is the year of. Did you see a lot of that at CES or yeah. where's the state of the nation? So I like to dispel the falsehood of the year. There is no such animal. When you're talking about something this big and this powerful, 
This is the multi-year evolution of. This is not the year of. Every year, and I'm going to CES half my life, you see progress made in various fronts. The last few years have been really interesting in the fact that a number of companies and a lot of investment dollars in the multiple billions and a lot of predictive analysis around the consumer sales and use case have been sort of professed. And I'm one of those guys that looks at all those and say, take all that with a grain of salt, take everything that everyone is anticipating and estimating, and basically chop about 90% of it away as nonsense. <laughs> but there's 10% of it that's pretty much right on the money. And those things will evolve into real businesses and real use cases and real value for people working in those mediums. In the sort of current state of it, I would say we're about four-ish years into this 10-year journey of where we're going to discover something really interesting. I kind of mm -hmm. feel like it really started happening around 2014, 2015, and now we're in the 2019 era, so four to five years later. And what we're seeing is a whole plethora of companies showing various mixed reality devices of various levels of sophistication, comfort, and use case. And it's not just one or two. It's like a bunch of different companies, all the really big boys, the big technology companies with a few that are the late entrants that will be coming soon, and a whole bunch of small to medium-sized startups, all showing that a lot of them are ready to actually be acquired by these big companies, that they have some of the equation right. None of them have it all right yet by a long shot. There is no device that I've seen on the market that is really fully ready to be a consumer-level mass consumed, mass success product, not even close. But the essence of a lot of these things get better and better year after year. And this year, while I wouldn't say it was a massive breakthrough year or a watershed year, this year was a strong evolution year where we're seeing more evolution, better use case, lighter, more nimble, more powerful, high resolution, better use case of the device. Are you seeing any particular applications that have begun to take hold or different use case scenarios that seem to be more of the right fit for this type of technology? The sort of most viable businesses for these technologies right now are actually in the enterprise and heavy and light industry worlds. There are actually a number of companies all over the world making very, very good livings using head-mounted displays in various forms to deliver into industrial markets, to enterprise markets in all kinds of ways from a productivity training, education, socialization standpoint. And I think you're going to see more and more of that coming because the idea of freeing up two really valuable things in your world, which are your hands, when you actually are working within screen-based behavior in your job all day long, is actually a really, really, really big deal. To be able to just hang the screen on your ears and put it where your eyes are, as opposed to holding it or setting it on your lap, or needing a physical desk to put it on, or a little side table, or something that reflects it feels like a laptop or a smartphone or a tablet, what if you could put that where your eyes are, right? right? And when the devices get nimble enough and powerful enough and fashionable enough, which they are heading in that direction, you start to see some really big moves. And the first ones using it are the ones where those employees at these companies would actually really like to use their hands for other things rather than holding their screen all day long. They have better things to do with their hands. We can put the screen where it makes sense, and we can give them their hands back to perform the kind of work functions they need to get through their day more productivity. And you tie it to adjacent technologies like voice and data that give you different ways to access that as well. 
look at the voice revolution that has happened over the last few years and how many people voice text now into their smartphone. I do it constantly. The only time I'm ever tap, tap, tapping on my cell phone is when I'm in a quiet place <laughs> where I need to send somebody a note and I can't talk into my phone. It is much, much more efficient to use my voice and the auto dictation features. And I do it enough that it's trained up to about 95% accuracy on my iPhone and all my other Apple products. And I use it constantly. So this is a good parable to that. It's just more functional. It just makes more sense. So when things make more sense, sooner or later, things get adopted. Industry adopts first, and then entertainment tends to follow along. And we're starting to see the first waves of that right now. Well, the last topic I want to talk about, a lot of our audience are corporate innovators. They're in a role like yourself where they're the maverick trying to convince 100-year-plus companies to think and move and act more like a startup or think differently about how they have been doing business for the last 100 years. What kind of advice or insights do you have as a person playing that role in a, a large studio to convince and move an organization forward into this new technology world that we're living in? My first and probably broadest advice is a book that I recommend everybody that touches that question in any way, shape, or form should read. And it's like mandatory reading for anybody that asks me that question is, read a book by an author named Clayton Christensen called The Innovator's Dilemma. And that will give anybody that is curious a really, really good sense of why large established corporations that have a certain value system in place find it so difficult to innovate and disrupt and do new things when small independent startups can often do this with a plump and they can run rings around large companies. So the challenge for large successful companies is that question of how can you really act like a startup, not pretend to act like a startup or sort of give the illusion that you're putting resources and giving lip service to acting like a startup, but actually really functioning like a startup. And part of that is to actually function like a startup. So right. you make the request in your large organization that you are allowed to function the way a startup functions meaning it doesn't adhere to the same value systems as the mothership. It doesn't work by the same rules as the mothership. And actually part of its intention in many cases is to try and actively cannibalize and destroy the mothership, which instinctively sounds horrible. and sounds like, <laughs> well, why would a large company ever allow it to do that? But the thought process, the overriding thought process is if you know that there is a potential that someone could come in and disrupt you, that someone could come in and eat your lunch, that has figured something out in a new way with a new value system and a new style of work, a new style of something that is going to have far-reaching effects on your business, do you want to do that to yourself and disrupt it yourself so you can own that next wave, next life of your company, or do you want someone else to do it for you? And then they will own it. So I've been involved in many companies over the years, which has led me into this futurist role, of companies that have been on that small, disruptive, tiny little startup that have grown quite large and become very successful entities in their own right, but they've always adhered to these principles that live inside the Innovator's Dilemma book. And it's hard to get away from that. It's just like almost irrefutable truths about it. It doesn't mean everything applies to every single case, but it's a really, really good book to read just to give you a sense of how to actually innovate, either as a small independent company or in many cases, to help your company that you're worked with or employed by help them innovate. I think if you want to look at, you know, obviously one of the most successful modern companies on the planet, Google, 
and you look at their work initiatives around a certain fairly high percentage of Google employees' work is mandated to work on things that are other than their job, that they're supposed to try and disrupt and figure out new business models within their work that are not their job. And one of the major revenue drivers of Google today, AdSense, which is that very sophisticated logic of how they generate dollars from advertisements that work within all their different platforms and products, came out of that off time, quote unquote, the non-specific to your job time. I think those are really valuable things to learn from and and words to live by. So the last question I have is your job pretty much is to be a full-time kid. What kind of advice would you give to people that are in this corporate cubicle world? They want to be more innovative. They want to be more creative in that. How can they tap into that side of themselves and tap into that creativity and adaptability that you have to bring to the table when you're dealing with new technologies in that every day of of the year? The kind of inner child. I tend to do it maybe more than most. And I don't think most people have to go as far as I do, but it certainly benefits me and it benefits Paramount to have someone like me kicking this stuff around in a way that is very childlike, that is very eyes wide open to the world. And Mm -hmm. everything is a possibility and nothing gets discounted. Everything is a yes on its way to maybe a no, not a no on its way to maybe a yes. That's an important sort of psychology that I live. I think if you want another point of reference that's really valuable is read Ed Catmull's book called Creativity, Inc. It's a very personal story about his journey with Pixar and how Pixar, such a successful entity, by creating a safe, nurturing environment where story means everything, technology is in service of the story, and the creative people are given license to act and work and think like children because they are focused on appealing and creating that creative effort to appeal to a family audience and make sure that that works. I would say that they've honed it almost to a soft science. They've figured out how to create that work environment. And if you've ever been to Pixar and Emeryville, you can see that embodied itself in the physicality of the building, the way that people work, the way that people think, their work environments and their structures. It's pretty amazing when you walk down the artist alleys in Pixar and every little area where every artist is working, they've all decorated them in their own way. So it almost looks like kind of a giant creative flea market inside the offices of Pixar, where one little mini office might look like a tiki hut. The next one might look like something out of Blade Runner. The next one might look like something out of Fortnite at this point or, you know, or, or Red Dead Redemption. The next one might look like something that is from Architectural Digest. And they all just blend and live and kind of nurture together because they just have creative outlets and they want to display them to themselves in the world. It's fascinating stuff. If somebody wants to find out more about Paramount and yourself, what's the best way to either connect with you or find out more? I'm on the various social media platforms like Twitter is at virtual Ted F. Email is my full name with an underscore. So Ted underscore Shilowitz at paramount.com. That's pretty old school, but I'm easy to find that way. And then there's a number of articles and there's a very deep dive podcast I did last year with a friend of mine named Jason, very specifically about augmented mixed reality. It's called the AR Show. 
two like one hour deep dive journeys. You could find that online quite easily. And then there's a number of articles about some of the initiatives I've been involved in and some of the work that I've done over the years that are easily findable online. Ted, we'll link to those in the show notes on that. And uh, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for being part of Inside Outside Innovation, the whole community here. We're excited to see what's next in the world of entertainment in that. Appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely my pleasure. Looking forward to giving it a listen. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.